I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And I have found all this talk of a wall at our southern border fascinating for many reasons. The most obvious is it wouldn't work. In this age of many modes of travel, a wall is a ridiculously simple idea. And as with most simple solutions to complex problems, it's wrong. Not a solution at all. Now, if one accepts the premise that there is an immigration problem, which I frankly do not, I think it's merely racism against people of color, but if we desire to stop or slow the migration of refugees into America, building a wall at the border is certainly not the way to achieve that goal. Donald Trump has been surprisingly effective at creating and stoking fear of the other. In fact, in a December 11th tweet, he says, they bring large-scale crime and disease, stoking that fear. And when there is panic, good, sound decisions are not a likely result. He doesn't care, of course. The petulant orange one wants what he wants. But what if we're actually interested in slowing or stopping immigration? What might actually work? To find solutions, uh, it is necessary to analyze a problem. The question which no one seems to be asking is, With the only open antipathy toward immigrants from the south of our border, why are they still trying to come here? Well, again, to solve a problem, one must get to the root. What are they fleeing and what can be done? With us today to talk about this issue is our old friend Patrick Lawrence, who's penned a commentary on Consortium News, suggesting a more effective solution than a wall. He writes, Northward migration from Central America will not stop until the conditions causing it are alleviated. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a pleasure to be back, Bert, and happy holidays to you and your listeners. Oh, you too. Well, Patrick Lawrence writes on foreign affairs for a variety of publications, including The Nation, Salon, and, of course, Consortium News. Well, actually, the proposed solution that you address in your uh, commentary comes from Mexico's new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Our guest writes that the day after he took office, Obrador sent his foreign minister to Washington. Though it's gotten no notice in the media, what did Marcello Ebrard propose, and with whom did he meet? Ebrard met with Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, so his counterpart, Um, and not much seems to have come of it. Uh, one cannot be surprised, particularly uh, Pompeo is not, a, in my book, a particularly imaginative statesman. Uh, so we don't really know what might come out of this. Uh, in in all fairness to your listeners, possibly not much. Well, what did uh, he propose? To me, the important thing is 
this question has been put uh, on the table, uh, and uh, it, I, what it, what Obrador and uh, his foreign minister have essentially done is is implicitly suggest let's look at the history of this problem and its root causes. Uh, one could not. One could not be more pleased to, to see this question raised. Well, what did he propose? What did uh, uh, the Mexican well, government... Well, he, he, uh, he is... Uh, Ebrard is calling it a Central American Marshall Plan. That's fine to an extent, but uh, I regret the reference because, uh, in one way, because the Marshall Plan was a very... Uh, calculated. It did it. You know, it it brought Europe back. Uh, in today's dollars, uh, the U.S. spent nearly a hundred billion on it. Um, right. Uh, it, it, it. I think the figure at the time was twelve billion uh, in nineteen forty-eight dollars. Um, but its motivations were a very Cold War. Okay, uh, a very Cold War and. Um, very uh, uh, driven also by the U.S. business interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in these dimensions, it's too bad that he, he used that term. However, nonetheless, what he means is uh, a concerted effort to uh, address the fundamental problems in the, in Central America that are causing this migrant this this massive migration northward uh they go back a long long time uh decades uh, uh a century or more right um uh the 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 root causes are very deep um just staying closer to the present uh, our support for uh, dictatorships that fostered, uh, you know, massive amounts of corruption and, and police violence and civil wars and so on and so on and so on. Um, that's, uh, they've left these countries, uh, maybe in ruins is probably too strong, but not far from it. Well, so he's proposed a plan to address all this, infrastructure projects, schools, healthcare systems, uh, water systems, all the rest of it, right? Uh, um, and these, and and none of the three countries could do this alone: Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Well, it is a lot of damage has been done by these particular uh, dictatorial governments that are have been supported by the U.S. And the Marshall Plan was obviously, you know, it was uh, done, well, not so much out of the goodness of our heart, because we got a lot out of it. Having, you know, rebuilding Europe uh, is good for our economy as well. They can buy more yeah, stuff. Yeah, the goodness of our hearts is is, is our advertising campaign, basically. <laughs> but. but it would be in our interest, would it not, to... Uh, spend some money to invest in infrastructure and feeding and education for people in Central America rather than having them be so destitute that they walk, you know, a thousand miles to get here? Without any question, Bert, 
it would be in our interest. But uh, that requires a lot of forethought uh, and and a, a measure of imagination, right, uh, yeah. among the policy people. And you can't count on that in Washington these days. No. Well, I wonder. There, there must. I mean, Trump has a lot of uh, enemies. It seems more and more every day. Self-created for sure. I wonder if other, you know, members of Congress or the U.S. Senate even heard about this meeting with the uh, Foreign Secretary of Mexico and uh, and the head of State Department, uh, Secretary Pompeo. And there must be people who, I would think, I would hope, would be, you know, interested in getting to the root of the problem. Have you heard anything about any kind of uh, reception and openness to the idea from other members of Congress in the Senate? No, I haven't. I haven't heard a word. Um, I I seriously question how how uh, what sort of attention anybody paid to the Mexican foreign minister's uh, visit. You know, I I I think if anything were to come of this. It would have to be a kind of person-to-person uh, click between uh, ah. Trump and Obrador in the way in the way things are getting done between Trump and Xi Jinping in China, right? Uh-huh. Um, you well. know, if he the deal maker would have to come in on this, and uh, he did signal when Obrador was elected. That um, that he could, there was a phone call, and he did signal that he thought he could work. The, Trump, the right wing populist, could right. work with uh, Lopez Obrador, the left wing populist. Right, uh, that was the thought. Well, it, it's a, it's a. They're both populist. They both won on populism, but one, I think, was an economic populism, whereas the other, Trump, is a cultural populism, which you know lends itself to. It's an interesting. Yeah, right-wing ideas. Why did Obrador win? What were the issues that connected with Mexico? I mean, this is a big change for Mexico. What might this portend a solution to the refugee issues? I'd like to think so, Bert. Uh, but again, uh, I I don't think it. Uh, I I I think we need to we need to limit our expectations. Uh, I think it's uh, it's sort of it's good enough that the issue has been put on the table. It's a step. Okay, um, we have a similar situation in uh, Europe, um, uh, and as I noted in my column, uh, I think the best way to look at this question of the U.S.-Mexican border is to see it as a, a, a variant of exactly what's going on in Europe. We <coughs> both. Both sides of the Atlantic have peripheries with which they must come to terms. Um, uh, As I noted in the column, a a few weeks ago, um, there was a summit in Istanbul uh, where France and Germany, basically core Europe, right, uh, uh, sat with Russia and Turkey uh, to discuss the, a reconstruction, a, a comprehensive reconstruction plan for Syria, um, the, the 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 motivation is plain. Uh, um, Germany has absorbed more than a, a million 
refugees uh, since, what, 2015 or 16 uh, to considerable political cost for Chancellor Merkel, right? Uh, So, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, both both the Europe, the West, both sides of the transatlantic alliance have have got to come to terms with their peripheries. And uh, I I don't know what's going to come out of the Istanbul um, summit, but they had it. Uh, It's under discussion. And it's the same, that's what I mean about the the meeting between uh, Ebrard and Pompeo. They had it. So uh, a step at a time, and let's see what comes of it. But it's not... It's not nothing that they that at least they have they have begun a conversation. Yeah, that's and true. if you look at uh, uh, Lopez Obrador's uh, uh, political record and his campaign and so forth, he he is authentically concerned with this. Uh, hmm. There is certainly something to read into the fact that one day after his election, he sent his foreign minister to Washington. And probably a matter a matter of hours after his inauguration, signed a comprehensive development plan with the three Central American uh, nations at issue. Well, you've given us a lot to talk about. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and our guest today is Patrick Lawrence, who writes on foreign affairs for a variety of uh, publications. And we're talking about uh, the. Immigration crisis, the problem, how to deal with it, and uh, there's a lot to it. And before we get it, I, I definitely want to talk about the comprehensive Central American Development Plan, but Western Europe, you know, they're, they have a migrant crisis, and it's causing right-wing, dare I say, racists to come out uh, as well and, and oppose the uh, in-migration from uh, places like Syria. I wonder if the reasons people flee from Syria may be similar in in uh, nature, and I, I wonder what we might learn from that. I mean, people are fleeing Syria, and people are fleeing uh, Central America, and it does seem that at least the U.S. has no small amount of responsibility for uh, what's going on in Syria. How how are they seeing it uh, on that side of the Atlantic? That that it might be in their interest to do something about Syria and that Istanbul summit? Well, we have to imagine there was a fifth chair in Istanbul, at that summit in Istanbul and it was empty. Uh, <clears throat> the United States did not attend it. Right, of course. Uh, considering the, the, the very significant role the United States has played in the destruction of Syria, uh, that's... Uh, at the very least, a, a, a pitiful. Um, whether the European, I mean, in, in other words, look, between Syria, Libya, and Iraq, um, the United States is, uh, has done more than any European nation, oh, I think, sure. to, oh, yeah. to, to cause the, the, the migration crisis from North Africa and the Middle East. And it's, uh, I, I, well, I, you know, Europeans, are, they're impossibly courteous when, they're, when it comes to uh, the, the Atlantic Alliance. I, I, 
I can't. It's hard to imagine they're not furious with the United oh, States for this, but it's. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're paying the you know, price. They, I think your listeners will get my point. They don't speak. They they are too much. They are, in my view, they have long been too subservient to the United States, the Europeans. I'd love to see them find their own voice. Well, I, I, you've written a book, actually, about uh, uh, the Western world after the uh, domination of the United States. Very good book. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Time no longer. Um, and I, I think it's starting to happen. I don't think Trump intends to do that. But back to comparing you know, Syria, Iraq, and Libya, which is a dreadful disaster— what responsibility does the U.S. have for what people in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador have to face? I mean, it's sort of similar situations. Uh, yes, it's a it's a longer term matter. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, we did we made fast work of of Libya, the most uh, the, one of the most developed nations in Africa, mm. um, in, in in very short order, of course, right? Uh, but uh, uh, in in Central America, it's different. It's a historical question, right? It means we're talking about our support for a small number of of dictatorial families. We're talking about all the all the military assistance, uh, police training. You remember the old school of the Americas uh, yes, somewhere mm-hmm. down in Georgia or where, wherever like it that. was? Yeah, in the Confederacy. Um, uh, you know, we we have supported um, the suppression of democratic movements in Central America for a long, long time. Um, uh, your listeners will remember the Nicaragua case, right? Oh, yeah, sure. uh, uh, many of them will also remember the the coup in Guatemala in no. 1954, a very, very major event in Guatemalan history, yeah, no. and 30 years of civil war and. Yep. Uh, political repression oh. followed. So, you know, the, we, we now have gang violence, drug trafficking, and so on. Very, very high unemployment, high murder rates, and all that. It's traceable to what the, to the political cultures the United States uh, fostered in these countries for a very long time. And there's no, there's no, there should be not any no one should have any difficulty under, you know, connecting these dots. <laughs> and, you know, these people are feeling desperate. You know, every time, I mean, Trump tries to paint them one way, but any time reporters actually get to the migrants, they talk about the uh, dreadful conditions. The, you know, they've lost family members, they've been murdered, and it's only desperation that would lead them to do this. Uh, yes. and, and I find it fascinating that Trump is suggesting a way to stop the immigration is to threaten the Central American governments with reduction in aid if they don't stop the flow of migrants northward. Uh, is that not an incentive? 180 cent- degrees upside down, of course. <laughs> of right. course. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine that being an incentive. That, yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> my point, Bert, in that column was, I, it was not to generate... Uh, I, I've had a lot of comment on the column. I, I was reading it this morning before we got on the phone um uh and numerous readers said are are you are you kidding Uh, you know you actually expect the united states to get into some kind of uh costly uh 
development arrangement in Central America? Well, my immediate answer is right, right away, no. Right. But I, I, I think these kind of things are, uh, one must take the long view yes. Yes. Uh, and, and be pleased enough that the, that, that the proposition has been put on the table. Plus, Mexico has already signed its own uh, plan with um, Honduras, uh, uh, El Salvador, and Guatemala, uh, and it has it has the backing of the United Nations. Yeah. So things are set in motion, right? Uh, yes. The United States should be in on that, just as if just as I have said, there was an imaginary empty chair at the right. summit concerning Syria. There's an imaginary em- empty line where the Americans, where Trump's signature should be on the on, on the plan that Obrador signed with the Central Americans quite and tell us you know, a, soon after the day of his inauguration, indeed. Uh, tell us about that comprehensive Central American development plan. What, what is in that? Um, it, it's, a, it's a version of what we're talking about. It's a, a, a series of projects, um, infrastructure, um, social infrastructure, aid, uh, in, intended to job create the, the 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 aims are job creation, uh, um, domestic security, border controls, and all that sort of thing, right? Um, and to just make these places uh, all in livable, so people don't have to leave, right? Yeah. Um, the the. The, the murder rates in these countries are some of the highest in the world, so far as I understand. Yes. So where would the money for that come from? Mexico doesn't, well, they, they have oil still, but do you have any idea where the money would come from for that? I, I, think, I think Mexico, I think that that plan has now got four signatures on it hmm. and, and some acceptance uh, at, a, at a UN Development Committee. Okay, so ah, uh, uh-huh. I, I think they're probably going to be looking for UN financing, uh-huh. you know, UNDP, United Nations Development uh, uh, Program, uh, things like that. And Mexico will put some in. Uh, Obrador's, uh, President Obrador's commitment is, is beyond question, right? Uh, Clearly. But I think it would, it would, I mean, imagine if the Americans would come in on this. Uh, 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 George W. Bush I was, gonna ask you that. was entertaining an idea uh, similar to this one when Vicente Fox was president in 2000. Uh, he, he considered Mexico, I think he announced that Mexico was America's, would be America's primary foreign policy and national security priority, okay? Yeah. Then came September 11th, uh, and then the wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and now Syria and so on. Uh, we've just had a study from Brown University. We've spent $5.6 trillion on those wars since 2001. Hmm. That's 280 times what... Foreign Minister Ebrard wanted to talk to Pompeo about. Hmm. Um, so, 
relatively speaking, we're not talking about a very large commitment on Washington's part. And as with the Marshall Plan, it served us well. And I can't help but think that, A, it would slow the uh, the desperation that people in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador feel, but it would also, uh, you know, if you put money in people's pockets, if if they can live there, maybe they can buy American stuff. That was part of the whole idea for NAFTA, I believe. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if you just continue to wreck their economy as as Trump, I can't, it's amazing to me. I, every day I'm amazed by Trump. It's true. To, to, to propose a reduction in aid if they don't stop the flow of migrants. It, it, he, he may as well have said, we have a migration problem because there are very bad conditions, living con- living conditions, economic conditions, security conditions in your countries. So if you don't stop it, we're going to make those conditions worse. That's 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 in sum what, what if he followed through on that. And he may. I mean, the, the Trump administration has been cutting foreign aid all over the place to uh, to uh, the Palestinians. Um, yeah. Uh, Two hundred and thirty million to Syria for reconstruction. Um so we have to wait and see what's next. You never know what's next with Trump, one way or the other, as you just said. <laughs> that is for sure. Well, what can people do? We do have members of Congress, and I think they're, yeah, perhaps, maybe this is wishful thinking, even Republicans are starting to think, maybe this guy's not so good. You know, maybe they're, they're willing to look at, at other proposals. What, if people want to communicate with their members of Congress, is there a specific uh, proposal that was was out there that, that might be named that you can say they support or you know or urge them to support? Not that I know of, and mm-hmm. I I am not a great one, Bert. For I'm not a great one for uh, yeah, uh, expressing faith in what in the responsiveness of our <laughs> congressional elected officials. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you weren't born our, yesterday. I know. Our political system is broken. Yes. Uh, in my view, I. Yes. You know, we have a few good people there, right? Uh, These last midterms brought some very interesting people in. Uh, People like Tulsi Gabbard are there, right? Uh, A lot of good people. But, uh, you know, uh, taking to to limit... I I don't know what people can do. I mean, Uh there are a lot of NGOs down there at work. Uh Uh, I know people in some of them, Uh right? Support them, you know. That's Uh, a good idea. Yeah, yeah, we can do it. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And, uh, thank, thank you, Bert. Thank you for informing us about this uh, clear alternative that makes so much sense. It'll probably never happen. <laughs> right, it's too clear an alternative, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Holidays, Bert. All right, you too. Thank you. And we'll be back talking about uh, Palestinian situation and CNN and uh, uh, what they have done recently and uh, see if that makes sense as well. Stay with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. People are running away.
That's an old record, Run, Run, Run. People are running away from Central America trying to uh, get to a country that doesn't even want them, but conditions are so bad. Well, you may have heard this story. CNN severed ties with liberal pundit Mark Lamont Hill after his controversial remarks on Israel. And it, uh, Mark Lamont Hill is a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia, and he made the comments in question during a meeting of the United Nations held for the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people when he called for a, quote, free Palestine from the river to the sea. Not surprisingly, many saw that as a call for the end of the Israeli state. And a lot of people were not pleased, people in positions of power. He said later, my reference to River to the Sea was not a call to destroy anything or anyone. I do not support anti-Semitism, killing Jewish people, or any other things attributed to my speech. I've spent my life fighting these things, end of quote. Well, the firestorm surrounding his comments resulted in CNN firing the popular commentator. While many Americans, including Jewish Americans, do criticize the racist, militaristic right-wing government, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Many thought his comments really went too far. Uh, river to the sea. Uh, it sure did sound like a call for the destruction of Israel to many people. But was it? Should he have been fired? What was he really saying? What about his rights and the rights of humans everywhere on the planet? Was it just those words that got him fired? Or was it the power and influence of pro-Israel forces in America not wanting us to look at the other words he said about the rights of Palestinians. <coughs> Excuse me. With us today to talk about this is Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's also a fellow of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. In 2001, she helped found and remains active with the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. She works with many anti-war organizations, writing and speaking widely across the U.S. and around the world as part of the global peace movement. She served as an informal advisor to several top U.N. officials on Middle East issues and was twice uh, shortlisted to become U.S. Uh, U.N., I should say, Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Occupied Palestinian Territory. His, her most recent book is the seventh updated edition of Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer. And she co-wrote the article, Mark Lamont Hill was arguing for the rights of humans, not of states, with the Reverend William J. Barber II, who was getting some notoriety for uh, standing up for human rights in the southern part of these United States. Phyllis Bennis, 
was in the room at the United Nations and heard Mark Lamont Hill make his controversial remarks. Thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you. What was the context of his speech? Where was it given and who was he addressing? What was that context? The context is crucially important, so that's a good question to start with. He was speaking, as you mentioned, on the UN's annual commemoration of the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People. The day, it's usually held on November 29th. Uh, This year it was moved to the 28th just for logistical reasons. But November 29th is the day of the 1947, uh, what's known as the Partition Agreement, when the United Nations voted to divide the mandate territory of Palestine, what had been a unified territory, into two, what was supposed to be two states, uh, a Jewish state and an, a Palestinian Arab state. And as we know, the Jewish state came into existence. Uh, it was not a position that was supported by most Palestinians because they saw it both on the level of principle that this was a, a, a a territory that had been a unified territory. They didn't really have nation-states back then, but it was the equivalent of a nation-state. For many, many years, many, many uh, uh, eons, we might say. Um, but also because the actual division that the UN uh, created was profoundly unfair. You know, this was a time when the Jewish population of Palestine was about 30%. The Jewish state was given 55% of the territory. Uh, so it was a it was a very uneven, unfair division. The Palestinians, who were seventy percent of the population, were supposed to be willing to accept only forty five percent. And of course, when the war ended, the war that the Israelis call the War of Independence, and what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba or catastrophe, meaning their dispossession and displacement of what was then two hundred uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. Palestinians who were kicked out of their homes during that war, uh, they were uh, they were left with not even uh, the the Israelis had now taken control of not just the fifty five percent the UN had given them, mm-hmm. but seventy eight percent of the territory, leaving just twenty two percent the West Bank, Gaza, and occupied East Jerusalem as the sole territory left uh, to the Palestinian population. So it was a vastly unfair reality that that emerged, and it's something that has been left unfair and gotten worse in the decades since time. So the UN, which was very much responsible for much of the uh, creation of the crisis, the ongoing crisis uh, in Israel-Palestine, has commemorated since the mid-70s that day, the November 29th date, as an international day of solidarity with the Palestinian people. And it's a very it's a very big deal at the UN. It's held in the either the General Assembly Hall or the Trusteeship Chamber, one of the giant, um, very formal halls of, of UN headquarters. And the other speakers include the Secretary General of the United Nations, the President of the General Assembly, that month's President of uh, the Security Council, a number of key ambassadors and le- leaders of uh, representatives of, of uh, regional groups at the UN, So it's a very um, formal and and sort of high-ranking diplomatic event. And there's always one civil society representative who participates as a speaker. Uh, In this case, it was was Mark Lamont Hill, who has, as you said, he's an academic. He's a a tenured professor at Temple University and also a a popular commentator on CNN. He's also written a great deal about 
various questions having to do with the Middle East, and particularly Israel-Palestine. So he was a very appropriate uh, representative of civil society, I think, and his speech was quite extraordinary. If you take out that one phrase at the end, which uh, led to very uh, influential pro-Israel organizations, most notably the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, which jumped on that phrase from the river to the sea and immediately demanded of CNN that they fire him, and within hours CNN responded uh, and, and indeed fired him. Um, but in fact, his comments were brilliantly appropriate to a speech at the United Nations. He focused very strongly on the link between the 70 years of the Palestinian Nakba, the, the catastrophe, and the 70th anniversary of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is also 70 years old this, this year, and talked about what those rights are, uh, starting with the right that's in the Universal Declaration that says all people are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And then he proceeds to go through, really chapter and verse, all of the various human rights guaranteed by the Universal Declaration that have been denied to the Palestinians for the long 70 years. So it was a, a speech grounded in the principles of human rights. And he talked about the need for equality, for the right to vote, to be treated equally for all people who live in that territory. And it was in that context that he ended with those words about from the river to the sea. And, of course, it was in the context of freedom and equality for everyone. Uh, and it was falsely claimed that that was somehow uh, evidence that he was trying to destroy Israel or whatever. The irony, of course, here is that that same language from the river to the sea has been used for, for generations by uh, early Zionist leaders uh, in the run-up to the creation of the State of Israel, and more recently in the, uh, the, the charter of the Likud party in Israel, which is, of course, the, the most powerful party, the party of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The, the party platform itself uses a version of that same phrase when it says that between the sea and the Jordan, they don't say the river and the sea, they say the sea and the Jordan River, right. same thing. there will be only Israeli sovereignty. So this is exactly mm -hmm. the same language, and somehow that's seen, seen to be okay, that the, the, the Likud party can say that uh, and have that be an ongoing component of their party platform, but if someone talks about it in the context of actual equality for everyone, Jewish and non-Jewish, Palestinian and Israeli, in that territory now under the control of the one government, the Israeli government, that's seen yeah. as somehow unacceptable. Apparently so it's so. A, an extraordinary kind of uh, double standard that we're looking at here, among other things. Double standard. What a surprise these days. My goodness. <laughs> Indeed. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking with uh, Phyllis Bennis who was there when Mark Lamont Hill made his controversial comments that have uh, gotten him fired from CNN. Now, I should just say one thing, Bert, you yeah. know, about this speech. We, we talk about it now as the controversial speech. In the context of the United Nations, it wasn't controversial no, at all. True. And in fact, his was the only speech of that morning's session, which had gone on for hours with, as I mentioned, about a dozen other high-level speakers, Mark Lamont's Hill's speech was the only one that was greeted with an enormous uh, ovation from the diplomats themselves. Uh, 
which is very rare in UN circles. It's usually very circumspect. People are, you know, they're very careful, they're very formal, they're very proper. But in response to his speech, there was a roar of applause, um, and it was not by any means seen as inappropriate, as controversial, as anything other than a powerful, fierce defense of human rights for everybody. Well, no wonder then, because, uh, you know, there are the right-wing forces in America, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when it was only the John Birch Society who said, get the U.N. out of the U.S. and the U.S. Okay. out of the U.N. And now it seems to be uh, the position, I mean, if the U.N. supports it, oh, it must be bad. Of course, I disagree with that. Now, you say it's important to note that Mark Lamont Hill framed his arguments in the context of rights, not states. But when he said a free Palestine from river to the sea, that sort of sounds like a state. What, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think what he was referencing there is looking at the reality of what exists today. You know, we hear a lot about the two-state solution is the only game in town. The two-state solution is the only option. The two-state solution is it, and there is no plan B. The reality is what we have today is not anything close to two states. It's one state right. under the control of the Israeli government. There is in the West Bank and in Gaza uh, Palestinian authorities who, are, who were created under the Oslo Agreements in, in the early 1990s, um, but who have no authority uh, to actually govern their territory. They are responsible for paying the teachers and seeing that the garbage is picked up, that sort of thing. Right. They have what you might call municipal authority. But they are under the clear unequivocal control of the Israeli government and, crucially, the Israeli military. So this is a situation of military occupation. And if you look at the territory as a whole, the territory that includes all of Israel, all of the West Bank, all of Gaza, and all of occupied East Jerusalem as a, as a unified territory, all of that territory is under the control of one government, right. the Israeli government. Right. Its governing, however, is not the same everywhere. It governs under two different legal systems for adults and for children. If you look at two 12-year-old kids in the West Bank, for instance, and both of them have been very mischievous and both of them have been throwing rocks at cars, what happens when they get arrested? Right. The Israeli kid, settler kid, or any other Israeli kid, who gets picked up in the West Bank will be uh, taken into custody or not, perhaps, on the basis of a juvenile justice system, very much like our own. Ours doesn't work all the time. It doesn't mm. work so well for kids of color, etc. Yeah. But on paper, it's a system that's grounded in the idea that it's all in the interests of the child, protecting the child. No child would ever be uh, picked up and arrested and taken away from her parents or his parents without the parents knowing where they were being taken, taken away, interrogated by the military, uh, made to sign documents of confession in a language they don't speak or write. None of these things would ever happen in this country. Uh, and, it sh and it doesn't happen to Israeli kids, and it shouldn't. The Israeli kids have lawyers with them, their parents are with them at all times, and the system is designed in the interest of the child. The 12-year-old kid across the street who's a Palestinian kid who's throwing stones is most often picked up at 2 o'clock in the morning, specifically because they know that's the time that terrifies the child the most, mm. taken into custody by the military, not by any civilian social workers or anything else, by military soldiers in uniform, armed, 
taken away from the parents. The parents are not told where they're taken. Taken actually out of the West Bank into Israel very often, something that is itself a violation of international law. Interrogated by the military, brought before a military judge. Israel's the only country in the world that has a military juvenile justice system. So there's a whole host of these ways in which you see the evidence of two different legal systems being applied to two sections of a, of a population in one territory by one government. And those determinations are based on race, ethnicity, oh, yeah. language, religion, all the criteria that are prohibited in the international treaties against racism and against apartheid. Well, so I'm... in that context, what Mark Lamont Hill was speaking to okay. is the reality that today there is one state that exists and that the, the struggle, and he didn't even say it this way, he didn't say explicitly there is one state, he said the struggle must be for rights in however many states exist. It's not about states. He said later in, in a, an email, ex, in a uh, Facebook exchange, he said my own preference would be for one state, but right. he went on to say, that's not my business, right. which is my position as well. And I think many of us, many of us who are Jewish and many who are not Jewish, take the position in the struggle for Palestinian rights that the issue is human rights and equality. If there's one state, fine, equal rights for everybody in the one state. If there's two states, fine, equal rights in and between those two states. The reality is right now, whatever we think about two states, it's kind of over. There's no land left. Israeli settlement construction has taken control, as well as military uh, land use, has taken control of more than 60% of the land of the West Bank. So it's, it's now talking about 40% of 22% is left for what was supposed to be a Palestinian state. Well, I wonder... So right now, that's not really possible. Clearly, you wouldn't get any argument from me that there's tremendous injustice going on against the Palestinian people. It's it's racist. It's militarist. It's horrible. And I think my feeling is, again, I'm not in charge here, but I like the idea of, of equal rights. And I'm my I guess I, I think that there will be a one state solution with equal rights for all, probably a secular state. But I, as you can imagine, have taken uh, a lot of criticism for my criticism of the Zionist state. And, you know, I, I come back to the line, free Palestine from the river to the sea. He's not calling for uh, equal rights for all in that particular phrase. He's saying a free... Well, but that phrase is taken out of context. If you look at his speech as a whole, he speaks of equal rights for all. And it's in that context. He didn't say that that phrase separate from everything else. Right. Now, could he have said, from the river to the sea, a free Israel-Palestine? Sure, he could have. Would that have avoided the problem? Probably not. So. <laughs> Probably not. You're right. Well, you know, pleasing the UN, of course, and, and getting a standing ovation from them is enough to... Uh... Not standing, I would say. I said an ovation. They didn't stand Oh, oh okay, an ovation. Well, actually, we do too many standing ovations here in the United States. I must say it's like true. meaningless these days. So if he did not call for the destruction of the state of Israel... And he did not. Would that... If, if he did call for it, that would be fair reason for CNN to fire him, would it not? I mean, what about his relationship with CNN? I mean, he's a professor at Temple University. I don't, right. I, I don't know his relations with CNN. He, he was a contract commentator. 
That's all. As many academics are, many non-academics are, you know, there's plenty of people who are talking heads on occasion. I've done that on occasion. I don't get paid by CNN when I do it. I haven't been on CNN very often either. Um, he's a regular, he was a regular commentator who was paid something. I doubt that he was paid all that much. I have no idea what he was paid. But he was a paid commentator. He wasn't a journalist who was somehow supposed to not have opinions on anything. Right. He was a commentator who was valued for his opinion and his ability to articulate his opinion, which he's very good at. Uh, so, you know, it was in, in that context. You know, CNN is a private company. They can sure. hire and fire whoever they want. It's right, not, they, right. they, don't, they don't have an obligation to hire him. You know, I wish they did. I wish they had an obligation to hire me, too. But, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You know. But the reality is this was a move by a political organization with a very specific political agenda, which is to not just build support for Israel, but to undermine critics of Israel. Uh-huh. And there's a whole campaign underway. It's also led by the Israeli state. There's a, uh, a brand Israel campaign, it's known as, that's a oh. component of the Israeli foreign ministry, whose job it is to work around the world uh, to change the perception of Israel, away from the perception of what it is, which is a country carrying out an, a belligerent military occupation of another land, but instead to focus on five areas of accomplishment inside Israel and make that the focus. So one is that Israel is supposedly green and environmentally friendly, that it's liberal, it has a big uh, uh, gay rights movement. Uh, What are the others? I, I used to know them in my head. I'm not sure I know them all now. But there were five very specific goals. One is the scientific uh, acumen in in Israel, all of which are things that are true, and they are profoundly irrelevant to the lives of the Palestinians that live under the belligerent occupation. So that's what was at stake here. That's what was underway here. I mean, if somebody said, I think the state of Israel uh, should be replaced by, the current state of Israel should be replaced by a state that's not defined as a Jewish state, but is a state of all its citizens. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's worthy of being fired for either. I think that's a perfectly legitimate position to have. I think it's inevitable, quite frankly. I I don't see much hope. I think the time, this is just my opinion, for a two-state solution has passed. And maybe the Palestinians blew it, maybe Israel, I don't know, but I just, I don't see that that happening. Well, I think there's not much land left for a two-state solution. (laughs) But again, that's an assessment, that's an analysis, that's the kind of work I do in in my book on Israel-Palestine and in speeches and in analysis. I can look at it and say, I don't think that's very realistic. What I want and what I think is the is the preferred way is really not of any relevance. I'm a Jewish right. girl from California. You know, I don't live there. Why? Right. Why would I? Right. It's not you know, up to me. None of my business to to say how many states there are. One state, two state, red state, blue state. You know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't about states. This is about rights. Yeah. Neither- however many states emerge based on the needs and wants of the people who live there, Palestinians and Israelis. Well, what about the um, the whole? I mean, as you say, CNN is a private. In, you know, enterprise, they can do whatever the heck they want. But I wonder about, uh, you know, any kind of chilling effect on, on freedom of speech with regard to Well, this. that's enormous, and that's very much the goal of it. I would imagine that uh, the people looking to, to attack not only Mark Lamont Hill, but so many other academics uh, who teach Middle East studies and have been attacked for their uh, perspectives on, on campus, who have lost jobs, who have been denied tenure, uh, the attacks on campus are right. enormous, very much for the reason that the 
the the movement for Palestinian rights, one component of it known as BDS, the yes. Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, uh, is working. It's having an impact. It's changing minds. Yeah. The the latest polls, uh, there's, there was one that came out just a couple weeks ago, indicate that support for Israel is at one of the lowest ebbs it's been in in years. Uh, and that's true among young Jews as well as everyone else. And this has some of the old uh, pro-Israel Jewish organizations terrified. Sure. The organization Jewish Voice for Peace, which I'm honored yes. to serve on the on the board of, uh, is, I think at the moment, one of the, either one of or the fastest growing Jewish organizations in the country. And it is based on support for Palestinian rights. Yes. Uh, so, you know, that's what these organizations are facing. They're losing support from the next generation of young Jews. When I was a kid, when I was growing up young and Jewish in, in California, there wasn't really a set of political options. You know, if you were Jewish, you were pro-Israeli. That's right. what there was. Right, right. Same here. And now the Jewish community is like everyone else on this issue. It, you know, there's a right, a left, and a center. And you have, you know, all the groups around APAC and the Council of Presidents and all those other groups on the right. You have J Street in the center, and you have Jewish Voice for Peace on the left, as well as a host of newer groups, mainly of young Jews, mm-hmm. whether it's Open Hillel or If Not Now. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, and it's fantastic. It's fantastic. There's a choice. There's political range for the first time. And I do think it's important that people understand that Zionism is not the same as Judaism. One is a a nation, you know, coming out, it's it's nationalism coming out of the 19th century nationalism, which got us all into the First World War. Uh, Exactly right. And it's particularly rooted in European anti-Semitism. It was one of several movements that was trying to answer the crisis of European anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe and particularly Russia at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, it was in that context that you had this rise of um, a number of movements, one of which was Zionism, but Zionism was a problematic movement from the beginning because for the origins of Zionism, the, the founder of modern Zionism, a guy named Theodore Herzl, he wrote about it as a colonial, uh, a colonial campaign. And in fact, he wrote many times to Cecil Rhodes, the, the uh-huh. infamous British colonialist who, yeah, who really. among other things, occupied most of Southern Africa yes. in the name of the British Crown. Yeah. And when and he he said to him, you know, I know you're interested in in Africa. I'm interested in this little piece of Arabia. You're concerned about Englishmen. I'm concerned about Jews. So why am I bothering you? Why am I writing to you to ask for your support? Because our projects are both something colonial. That was an extraordinary phrase. When I read that, I was like, wait a minute, nobody ever taught me that when I was (laughs) studying the history of modern Zionism. Where did that come from? And I started doing some research and found that it was very much a colonial operation at the same time that for many Jews at the moment, they saw it as one way of fighting back against anti-Semitism. But it was problematic because you had... In the context, for example, in Russia, when they had these pogroms attacking Jewish villages, uh, the, the effect would be uh, attackers would come and they would they would destroy shops and homes and they would kill the men, rape the women. It was a horrific scene. And following them would be Zionist organizers who would and and they would be saying these these people carrying out this atrocity would be saying you don't belong here. You've got to get out of here. Right. You don't belong here. You're not really Russian. You have to leave. You have to leave. 
And they would be followed on occasion by Zionist organizers who would say, you're not really Russian, you're really Jews, it's a different nation, and you should come with us to start this new country somewhere else. And people said, wait a minute, we've been here for 500 years, our yeah. ancestors are here, our ancestors are buried here, we're not going to leave, what, you know, this is where we belong, we have to live here. So it wasn't really a majority view among Jews until the Holocaust right. made it impossible for Jews right. to survive anywhere else. Right. And suddenly the question of Israel was now going to be seen in the context of post-Holocaust survival. Yeah, and that seems to be used to try to justify every militaristic and uh, yeah, unfair act that goes on. Exactly. So just to, to wrap it up, Mark Lamont Hill, what he said sounds a little bit like for a state of Palestine, but if I have this right, what he really meant is just equal rights for all there, for Palestinians. He said that explicitly throughout his speech, exactly, that this is all about human rights and equality for all. Equality for all. What a radical concept. What a concept. <laughs> I thank you, Eleanor Roosevelt, for the uh, work on the Declaration of Human Rights, Indeed. which is also the 70th anniversary, 2018. Anyway, thank you so much. If people are interested in following your work, you can probably point them to something on the Internet. Uh, sure. They can go to the IPS website and look at uh, my my project. is called The New Internationalism, or they can just go to my name, and it's ips-dc.org. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Little Palestinian music here. Thank you. Arabah